Well, good morning. Um, thank you, Dave, uh, for that introduction. It is uh, good to be here, and I just feel the, the need to at least say up front uh, how great I think it is uh, when churches uh, treat one another as partners in gospel ministry uh, and not competition. And so I appreciate um, Dave just reaching out to Paul and then Paul um, putting my name forward as someone who could come and fill in today. I'm excited to, to be able to teach from God's word. Um, and don't worry about the screaming children or crying babies. I have four young children of my own. Uh, and apparently, according to my wife, I have developed some skill that allows me to ignore crying and screaming. Um, I, I find it quite useful. She thinks it's annoying. Um, so, um, yes. And I am, uh, as Dave mentioned, originally from the South. So you will hear the accent. There is nothing I can do about it. Uh, I hope that it is, is not a distraction for you this morning. Uh, but it is, uh, as I said, good to be here and to talk about this passage from John chapter 4. And, and really what I'm going to do today is we're going to go kind of broad brush uh, through John chapter 4 because this little dialogue, this teaching moment that Jesus has with his disciples is actually kind of bookend with a story that is taking place, right? There's a story that's going on on the front end, and the story kind of wraps up on the back end, and in the middle is where Jesus is actually talking to his disciples. And this is a very common call that we see in verses 34 uh, through 38 to go and to share the gospel. And Jesus promises fruit whenever his people go and share the gospel. But uh, as any good teacher does when he's teaching his disciples, he, he puts other things around it. Right? We know, I'm, my background is education, that you can stand in front of people and you can just talk. But when it's in the midst of an actual project, right? project-based learning is a huge thing in education. Service learning is a huge thing in education. Because when we teach things and there are other practical, tangible things happening at the same time that enforce that lesson, then we get an exponential increase on the amount of learning that actually takes place, what people actually walk away with. And so what we're going to do today is we are going to spend time looking at just what it is that Jesus is up to in John chapter 4. And I think it's very enlightening for us as well to consider how it is that we read the Gospels. Gospels, um, all, all four Gospels have this kind of combination of talking about Jesus' life and Jesus' teachings. And I think sometimes for the modern reader, we kind of go through, it's like, oh, this is what he did, this is what he did, this is what he taught. And sometimes we miss these really amazing, clear connections that what he is teaching about and what he is doing at that same time go hand in hand with one another. And they form a beautiful picture and help us understand at a deeper level what it is that Jesus wants us to see and understand and how it is that he wants us to live. So... We will actually pick up today, we're going to get to 34 through 38, we're going to read some chunks, uh, and again, we will take them in large pieces. So if you have your Bible, uh, please go ahead and open up to John chapter 4. If you don't have one, the Bibles uh, in the chair po pocket in front of you are available, and uh, we're going to begin on page 984 uh, in those Bibles. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 uh, as we work our way through this passage. It says, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Here is the context for our story, right? The Lord Jesus is actually going to kind of get out of um, Jerusalem. He's going to go uh, back up north. Uh, he's leaving Judea, going to Galilee. Um, and, and as he is going, he's on a journey. And I love the way that the gospel, they don't waste details, right? And it just speaks to the humanity of Christ that, that John even tells us that Jesus was weary. He was tired from his journey. And so they take a rest at this well. But the other part that really sticks out to me here is actually verse 4. This verse 4 says, He had to pass through Samaria. This is, this is not because there was only one road, and that road went through Samaria. And there is some argument, actually, among commentators about whether or not the straight road north through Samaria was the most common for Jewish travelers, or whether they would actually go in a westward direction and then north around Samaria and then back into the Galilean countryside because they so despised and hated the Samaritans that they would walk an extra, sometimes almost 100 miles to avoid them. So when John tells us that he had to pass through Samaria, this is not an indication that there is no other way for Jesus to get there. What actually comes across in the text uh, with, that many commentators touch on when talking about the Greek is that he was compelled, he was restrained by the will of God to go through Samaria. Not by travel plans, but by God's divine appointment. He was restrained to go through Samaria. Now, if, if you know anything about John, the, the whole gospel, and you think about chapter 3, which, you know, Jesus just had this really long conversation uh, with a Pharisee, a man who was named Nicodemus, right? And at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, it says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus and had this long conversation with Christ. This is where you get the very famous passage of John uh, 3.16, Jesus is telling Nicodemus he must be born again, and he doesn't understand what he's talking about. But Jesus is just leaving this really intense conversation with a ruler of the Jewish people. And then you get to chapter 4, and you read in verse 4, he's got to go through Samaria. There is divine appointment for Jesus in Samaria. And so it begs the question, just who is this divine appointment with? Is it another one of the rulers of the Jews? Is it a king? Is it a spiritual leader? A government official? Is, is it another person like Nicodemus? And the answer comes when we pick up our reading in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. This divine appointment 
turns the ancient world on its head. Jesus talking with Nicodemus makes perfect sense. Pharisee, ruler of the Jews, tons of authority, tons of leadership, lots of influence. But a Samaritan woman? One of the the people whose race was considered to be half-breeds and who the Jewish people didn't want to associate with? One of them, and on top of that, a woman? in this day and age, is who he's going to meet with. This is rat, no influence, no leadership, yet Jesus, in the way that he operates, will stop and have a conversation with this woman and give her just as much attention and just as much time and just as much thought and answer her theological objections and questions in the same way that he did Nicodemus. He shows no partiality. Continue reading with me in verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In this short conversation with her, the beginnings of their conversation, they really talk a lot about physical need, right? They are talking about water, but it is in the midst of this conversation of the everyday physical needs that we have that Jesus actually, in a way that only he can, starts to use wordplay and make messianic references, right? To the fact that he is the Messiah. And if this woman were a Jew, she would would know uh, the God, the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah in places like Isaiah 12, 3 says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Or Isaiah 44, 3 that says, for I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. So when he starts making these messianic references, she would get them if she was Jewish, but she's not. And the Samaritans did not actually accept the entire Old Testament as Scripture because they were not part of the Jewish people. They were seen as cut off. But the Samaritans were around for the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch. So she would know references there, but not necessarily Isaiah. But she would understand Numbers 24, verse 7, which says, "...water shall flow from his buckets." And his seed shall be in many waters, his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. 
which might be why she immediately points out to Jesus that he doesn't even have a bucket, <laughs> right? You're, you're talking about giving me living water, and I don't know if you're talking about Numbers 24-7 or if you're talking about some other well around here that we don't know about, but you don't even have a bucket, man. And so Jesus, in recognizing that she still doesn't quite get it, what it is that he's actually, off, actually offering her, continues the dialogue in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. In the midst of this conversation, it begins in a way that is very earthly and focused on real physical need. They're talking about water, but Jesus, knowing that this woman has a longing that goes beyond thirst, that she has needs that go beyond her physical needs, continues the conversation and actually starts to touch on the sin in this woman's life. The ways in which she has lived, she's had five husbands and she's now with someone who is not her husband. And he calls her out on this and immediately, in a way that one might when their sin comes to light, she moves to a more comfortable theological discussion about whether or not we should worship in this place or that place. But Jesus, to not be deterred, makes it very clear to her where you worship God is not what's most important. We are now moving into a, a a period of time in God's kingdom where those who worship him worship in spirit and in truth. And so the woman says that she knows the Messiah is coming. She's already perceived Jesus to be a prophet because he says this thing about her, right? He knows these things about her that she had not told him. And so Jesus finally reveals himself to the woman that he is the Messiah who she is seeking. And D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this passage, um, says this, that in all four Gospels, the sheer flexibility of Jesus leaps from the pages as he deals with a wide array of different people and their various needs. And no less startling, though more often ignored, is the manner in which Jesus commonly drives to the individual's greatest sin, hopelessness, guilt, despair, or need. 
When Jesus encounters someone in the same way that he did with Nicodemus, he saw what Nicodemus did not see. That Nicodemus was blind to the fact that he needed to be born again. And here he is with this woman at the well, and he sees that she's here getting water. But what she really needs is the redemption of her soul, the forgiveness of her sin, her specific sin that he lays before her. And Jesus, his sheer flexibility, this uncanny way of going at where people really thirst, what it is that they, in a way that we long for and desire water when we haven't had it in a long time, He knows the things in someone's life that make them really thirst, what their greatest longings are, and he knows where to go and what he needs to say to offer true living water. And what this woman at the well needs is not necessarily a cool, fresh drink, but a fresh start with the forgiveness of her sins. He offers living water, and not just for this woman, but for everyone who would ever encounter him and seek him as the Messiah. Our true deepest longings, our need for forgiveness, to be rid of guilt, fear, shame, sin, hopelessness, any of these things, Jesus is the place where we can truly be satisfied. And just then, in verse 27, after he has gone right for what it is that this woman really needs. He has spoken directly to her deepest longings in life. The disciples show back up. Verse 27, it says, just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? Apparently, John, who was there, knows they didn't say it, but they were thinking it, right? Because he could very easily write the questions that they wanted to ask, but they didn't, right? Because he's talking to a woman at a well, okay? And this is is biblically, and, and even in the literary world, something that is known as a motif, right? So a, a motif works kind of like this. If, if you were watching a Western, which I watched a lot of growing up because my mom obsesses over Westerns. So I know in a Western, when there is this old town, right, just two buildings on either side of a road, an old dirt road that wagons and horses come in and out on. But I know when I'm watching one of those films that if they give you a shot, of that road with the buildings on either side and nobody's out there. And all of a sudden, a little piece of tumbleweed, right, just comes across the screen by itself, okay? We know what's about to happen, right? The hero and the villain, six shooters on their side, are about to walk out and we're going to have ourselves a good old gunfight, right? We know it's a motif, okay? And so... In reading the Old Testament, if you pay really close attention, when a man meets a woman at a well, some things happen, okay? You, you may remember um, that it was at a well, right, where um, Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And it was at the well where they found Rebekah. And then Jacob when he was sent away 
right, by his mother. He went to a well, and at the well, he found Rachel. In what is one of my absolute favorite, like, full-on, I'm going to impress this girl feats, right? Does everybody know what I'm talking about? He gets to the well, and they're all waiting around. He's like, why are you guys waiting around? And they were like, well, this stone's really heavy. And so when everybody gets here, we move it, and then we can get, our, we can get some water for our flock. And he's like, who's that girl? You know? And they're like, oh, that's Rachel. And he's like, I'll move this stone, right? And so he goes over there, and, and on his own, that's the Wade Williams paraphrase, right? So he goes and moves, and he meets Rachel, right, at the well. And even Moses, when he flees Egypt, right, into the desert of Haran, he meets Zephora, his wife, at a well. And so Jesus' disciples walk back out of Samaria, and they see Jesus at a well with a woman, and they're freaking out, right? They're like, and not just any woman, that woman. But here is what is ultimately true about that woman and her relationship with Jesus, is that she does become the bride of Christ. Jesus will take her and make her a part of his church, his true bride, so that she can be wed to him and enjoy all the benefits of being in relationship with Christ in a way that is open for anyone who would repent and believe and place their trust in Jesus. Amen? Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Again, gospel writers are fantastic. They don't waste a detail, right? Because the one thing that I love that John makes sure we understand here is that the woman left the water jar. When Jesus was there, she was talking to him in the beginning, remember, and she told him, you don't even have a bucket, right? And Jesus starts speaking to her deepest longings and what it really is that she needs in life. And when she sees who Jesus is, the treasure hidden in a field, the pearl of great price, she leaves her water jar and runs back into town to tell everyone what it is that she has found. In haste, she runs with the news of living water that truly satisfies and is so infinitely more valuable than the water she came to draw, she leaves her jar. And so now, Jesus is alone with his disciples. And so he does what he does. He, he teaches, right? And so I'm going to read verses 31 through 38 here, um, and this will be the text that we actually had read at the beginning of our time today. This is how we get to that point, right? To verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life 
so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor, that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you are entering into their labor. The end here, Jesus is making reference to all of the prophets and people of the Old Testament and even guys like John the Baptist who were preparing the way for him, who were laboring and laboring but did not reap, yet the disciples are going to reap. And this is where the challenge is. This is where the rubber meets the road for us today. Do do we see and value the living water that Jesus offers enough to go and share the gospel? To get our hands dirty, because this is the call. He just did it himself, right? With the woman at the well, in his unique way, speaking to the deepest longings of her heart, calling her to repent of sin and follow and trust him. And he calls us to do the same thing. A good friend of mine, uh, college friend, is a, a, a church planner, pastor uh, in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I will always remember uh, what my buddy Matthew said to me as he was going to New Orleans. Um, we had some conversation about whether my family might join him, and it wasn't the right time, and it, it didn't work out. And he said, Wade, don't worry. He said, but just pray for this, because it doesn't have to be you. He said, but Wade, will you just pray for this? And he quoted Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, which is, for just reference here, is given in a different context than what Jesus just talked about at the, uh, at the well with his disciples, which means that this is probably something that Jesus talked about multiple times. We see him say something similar to his disciples at the well in a different context. In Matthew's gospel, he has some pretty similar words. But in Matthew 9, 37 through 38, he says this to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And that was my friend Matthew's challenge for me, is if it's not you, that's fine. But pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers with us to reap this harvest. And I'll have to tell you that um, that verse and that conversation with Matthew and what he's doing in in inner city New Orleans... um, gave birth at some level to the snarkiest tweet that I have ever sent out. Okay, so if you don't know what a tweet is, um, it's a popular, Twitter is a popular social media platform where you can say things. You used to only have 140 characters to be able to say something. Um, but during the COVID-19 pandemic, I saw, I don't know, it was probably like the 10th Facebook post or Twitter post where somebody was telling me that they were starting a blog, Right. Somebody is announcing, hey, here's my new blog. Go and read my blog, right? Everybody read, 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 read. And all a blog is, for those of you who don't know, is, is basically people will just get a, a website on the corner of the Internet where they can write about whatever they want to, right? And there's not, I read some blogs. It's helpful to have a blog, okay? But not that many. We got way more bloggers than we actually need. And here is the thing that I've come to realize um, is that the frustrating part to me when I see that is this, is that people want influence without relationship. You can read my blog and me never have to really talk to you. And so I can influence what you believe and how you follow Jesus and all of these kind of things. And so I, I can just write a blog and I can influence you but never have to get my hands dirty. Right? And so when I think about Jesus calling laborers into the harvest... I don't think about blogs, okay? 
And so my tweet um, was this. Probably shouldn't read. It was, <laughs> this is what I said. Then he said to his disciples, The readers are plentiful, but the bloggers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the blog that he would send out bloggers into social media. Hashtag things he did not say. Because when Jesus calls us to share the gospel, to reach people, he's calling us to actually get into their lives. He's sitting down with a Samaritan woman at the well. He's talking specifically about her life. He is talking about her needs. He is not just dealing with some generalized abstract theology. And the reason that many want to live in the blogosphere these days is because your blog readers don't call you at 3 a.m. when they just got in a fight with their spouse. Your readers on a blog don't call you when they unexpectedly lose a child. And you don't have to call your blog readers out on their specific sins and the way they are not following Jesus. You just talk in abstract Theological generalizations. But that's not where the harvest is. The harvest is in meeting people where they are and serving them, speaking into their lives and connecting them to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has this moment with his disciples where he says, listen, you guys may be excited about Nicodemus. You may be excited about some of these other rulers and people that we're talking to in the synagogues. But I'm just as excited about this Samaritan woman that I just talked through to. And I want you to know that those who are out right now are already reaping a harvest. Look at verse 39. This is the object lesson. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And he told me all that I ever did, is what she said. So the Samaritans came to him and they asked to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And it's amazing that Jesus teaching to his disciples... He's saying the words while the Samaritan woman is gone. And if you, I don't know that it happened this way, but I just imagine in my mind that he's saying, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest, right? When he says that to him, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit of eternal life. The sower and the reaper rejoice together. And as he's telling them, lift up your eyes. If they just look over the well, they may see a whole town of people literally running at them. So that when he calls them to this, there is at the same time a very clear object lesson. The woman at the well is doing exactly what he is talking about as he is saying it to the disciples. And so his call is immediately confirmed. His promise within the call that the one who sows is reaping right now. There's a promise embedded in that. And his disciples immediately see that it's coming true. Here it is, a town of people running out. The Samaritan woman are coming to see Jesus, the one who satisfies all of their longings. Nobody, no one 
after Jesus talks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, is running out to meet Jesus. But in John chapter 4, after Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman who's been married over five times and is now living with her boyfriend, a whole town comes out and asks Jesus to stay and teach them. A few things that we can see here is, one, that God does have divine appointments. Everyone has a longing for Jesus to satisfy. Everyone has sin that Jesus needs to forgive. And that we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the harvest because the fields are white. Even in hard times, I've always loved Psalm 126, 5 through 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. God's call for us to go and share, to be the light of the gospel, is not just when things are going well for us. This Samaritan woman had a lot of things going wrong. But she went out and sowed in the midst of her pain and her sorrow and her tears, and she came back rejoicing, bringing with her sheaves. And the last thing I'll say today is this. Don't fear that you'll get it wrong. That you won't do it as well as Jesus. Because that didn't happen in any way. Right? But it's not all up to you. Take comfort in the words of the Samaritans. The woman introduced them to Jesus. That's our role. But take comfort in these words, that these words would be spoken of over you one day, over me one day, that people who we introduce to Jesus would say something like this. It's no longer because of what you've said that we believe. For we heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, um, for the opportunity to, to look at your word, to be taught by the Master. Father, we thank you for Jesus and what he has done for us. And we pray that we would take up the example that he set for us in his self in the way that he shared the gospel, but also the way that he lifts up the Samaritan woman. And we can see your promises coming true that those who go out into the field as laborers will reap a harvest. So would you call us to that? Would you point us to the right places? Would you bring us, Lord, would it be that we have to pass through certain areas, that we have to go to certain people for the divine appointments that you have for us? And God, we pray that Jesus would work in our hearts and that we would see him as the one that truly satisfies our longings. And even as we take communion in a moment, as we eat bread and drink juice, Lord, that we would think of being hungry and thirsty and the longing that we have in the way that Jesus has not only satisfied that, but all of the longings of our heart. We pray these things in his name. Amen.